0: There's a common misconception in Christian circles that the gospel passage which Deacon Bud just read from Matthew chapter 18 represents Jesus' formula for resolving conflicts within the church. And there's a problem. There's a problem with that view. And the problem is that, as you know, conflict can arise out of any number of issues, including. For example, a a simple difference of opinion. But this gospel passage relates only to a very specific issue, namely the issue of sin. In fact, the context of Jesus' words here would indicate that he's referring to sin that is both grievous and personal, meaning serious sin, ...that is perpetrated by one Christian against another. That's the specific context here. Not that this pattern of reconciliation shouldn't be used to resolve other interpersonal conflicts. In fact, it should. But with the understanding that it prescribes an outcome that is related only to grievous sin... Now, before I get too far, let me say up front that by and large, much of today's church has a problem dealing appropriately with the issue of sin. Too many priests have abdicated to the spirit of the age by ignoring sin, by refusing to preach about it, by glossing over it or even affirming it when it comes to hard issues like homosexual activity, or contraception, or Catholic politicians who advocate for abortion. This abdication leaves many of the faithful confused over whether there really is such a thing as sin anymore. Or if there is, its definition is so narrow as to be virtually meaningless. This situation can be deadly. As faithful Catholics, we need to maintain a perspective that is both formed and informed by the Word of God and the magisterial teaching of the Church. There is such a thing as sin. It is an offense against God, and it does require a response. But I'm suggesting that by and large, even we who do hold that perspective don't always deal with it very well when sin involves a personal offense by a brother or sister in the Lord, one that is perpetrated against us, in other words, by a fellow believer. Because, again, that is precisely what Jesus is talking about in Matthew eighteen fifteen. He says, if your brother sins against you, if your brother sins against against you now let's stop right there and let that clause sink in for a moment if your brother or of course your sister sins against you at the risk of dredging up some old stuff that may already be forgiven and under the blood of jesus now can you think of a time when that applied in your life most of us probably can I'm not talking about simple disagreements, little snubs, or misunderstandings, nor is Jesus, if your brother sins against you. If that's ever happened to you, do you remember how you handled it? Badly, perhaps? Did you write him off? You know, the heck with you, or worse. Did you stop speaking with him and cut off all contact? Did you get on the phone or social media with a third party to talk about it? Wait till I tell you what he did to me. Social media has the potential to destroy more relationships than almost anything else we can think of. Did you fantasize about a way to even the score? And did you carry it out? Those are all very human reactions and reflect the very human tendency to return a wrong for a wrong and protect oneself from further hurt. But the lofty principles and, in fact, the lofty demands of the gospel point to a far better way. A way mandated by Jesus himself. A way that upholds the gospel's ultimate goal of redemption and reconciliation. Remember, we're not talking about here about someone who has inadvertently offended you or hurt your feelings. Again, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, the sin may be an offense to you. But more importantly, as sin, it is by definition a transgression against Almighty God. That needs to be fixed. That sin has caused a rift between your brother or sister and you, but the real issue is to repair the breach of fellowship that it causes between your brother or sister and God. In the kingdom of God and in the church, that breach of fellowship with God must not stand. Someone needs to take the initiative humbly to bring that person to repentance and back into fellowship with the Lord. And guess who that person is? If you are the aggrieved one, it is you. And so Jesus says, go. Not wait for your brother to come to you, not send some neutral third party to talk to your brother. No, Jesus says, go. In our reading from Ezekiel this morning, our Old Testament reading from Ezekiel, the prophet warns us that if we see a brother or sister in sin and we say nothing, his or her eternal salvation is on our heads. Think about that. The individual who is wronged, in this case you, must take the initiative to put things right. Do you know why? That doesn't sound logical, does it? But do you know why? Have you ever wondered why it is the responsibility of the aggrieved Christian to effect reconciliation? The answer is very simple, actually. Because that's God's way. That's the way of grace. When you and I were dead in our sins, as Paul says... God, the one who was aggrieved, took the initiative with us to set things right. And now he desires that we would do the same with each other. Go, Jesus says, and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In other words, your first resort should be a loving, truthful encounter between you and the one who has sinned against you, an encounter which is private and confidential. And sets the stage and creates a climate for redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation. Because redemption, forgiveness, and reconciliation are what the Lord is referring to. To in the last part of verse 15, when he says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Gained him where? Gained him how? Gained him back into the life of grace. Grace. It relates to the crucial end, the goal that the Lord has in mind for this kind of encounter. The goal is not your self-satisfaction. The goal is not to wring an apology out of the one who has hurt you. Not that an apology would be a bad thing, but it's not the point. The goal is repentance by the one who sinned and the restoration of fellowship between two believers and between a sinner and God. Listen to these words by St. Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. St. Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, and patience, forbearing one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive And above all, put the above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. One of the most Christian things that you can do for a brother or sister who has sinned against you is to lovingly and humbly go to that person to effect reconciliation. That is, as a matter of fact, one of the spiritual works of mercy, admonishing the sinner. Don't get even. Don't write them off. Don't go to court. Don't get on the phone or Twitter and talk about them to others. We belong to the Lord and to each other, and the Lord puts a very high premium on preserving the fellowship and unity of believers, not at the expense, however, of the truth. That's why Jesus outlined this process for hopefully restoring unity based on the truth. Here's what he says in verses 16 and 17. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, in love, humility, and a spirit of forgiveness, Give the sinning person every opportunity to repent and return to fellowship bringing one or two other believers into the process if necessary and finally relying on the witness and the authority of the church verse 17 if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector and then The following verse serves as an explanation for that verse. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus had already spoken these words directly and personally to St. Peter two chapters earlier in chapter 16, as he established Peter's primacy among the apostles. Now he speaks it, In a general way, to all the apostles as the nucleus of leadership in the fledgling church, Jesus intended that his authority be vested in the church, the authority of binding and loosing. And so he includes in this declaration the authority to excommunicate one who refuses to hear the church and chooses to remain in the state of unrepented serious sin. Why is the exercise of this authority important? Let's think about it in the context of the culture in which we live today. Because you and I are witnessing the unraveling of this culture taking place very rapidly before our very eyes. And so, just when the world and the culture need the church to be at her strongest, I would suggest to you that she is limping. She is lame, and she is at her weakest point in our lifetimes. Why? Again, I would suggest that there's a direct correlation between the fact that the church's moral authority has been greatly diminished in our culture today and the hierarchy's failure to address grievous sin within the church in accordance with Jesus' command in Matthew 18. The sex abuse scandal that has rocked the church for decades and that has been exposed over the past two decades is a case in point. Apart from the unspeakable tragedy of devastated lives, think about this. How much less is the church, church's perceived authority today to speak out on, for example, abortion? because of her failure to properly and biblically address the horrific sin of priests and bishops abusing children and of bishops covering it up. And by the way, there are still those who would respond by saying, oh, that's true, but that's old news. The church has really cleaned up her act in recent years. And I'll stipulate that to a large extent that is true, and the church is a far safer place today than it was decades ago. But I'll quickly add that in some quarters, the cover-up continues. We were promised two years ago a full report on the Theodore McCarrick catastrophe. Where is it? Two years ago. It was not for nothing that Jesus invested in the church the authority of binding and loosing. Of what use would that authority be if she never exercised it when the situation demanded it? Today we have a man running for the office of President of the United States, who is very pub- who very publicly proclaims what a devout Catholic he is, while proudly and aggressively advocating for abortion up to the moment of birth proudly and aggressively advocates for federal funding for Planned Parenthood, the most violent and most racist organization in America today. He also proudly and uh, and aggressively advocates for the repeal of the Hyde Amendment, forcing all of us to pay for those abortions. He has chosen a running mate who holds even more extreme views than he does. She actually voted against a bill in Congress which would have required that a baby who survives an abortion and is born alive be afforded the same degree of care that would apply to any other baby delivered at the same gestational age. Folks that's just sickening to think about. By the way, in case you think that my characterization of Planned Parenthood as the most violent and most racist organization in America is extreme, consider this. In the years since Roe v. Wade, 61 million babies have been aborted in America, the vast majority of them by Planned Parenthood, upwards of 85%. What other organization do you know of that has that much blood on its hands? Of those 61 million, 23 million were black babies. Again, the vast majority killed by Planned Parenthood. And as I've told you before, those black babies were targeted by Planned Parenthood, evidenced by the fact that they deliberately operate more than 80% of their facilities in inner city black neighborhoods. This lines up very neatly with the objectives of Planned Parenthood's racist eugenicist founder, Margaret Sanger, whose stated desire was to rid society of what she termed undesirable populations. If that's not racism, I don't know what racism is. So the question that begs to be asked here is do not unborn black babies' lives matter? And where are the bishops who, for the benefit of this man's immortal soul, should be thundering with one unavoidable apostolic voice at this Catholic candidate? How dare you? How dare you present yourself so publicly as a faithful Catholic? while trampling on some of the church's most serious and most fervently held moral precepts. Brothers and sisters, the loving, but when necessary, stern exercise of God-given authority is, in point of fact, an integral part of the church's witness in the world, And the result of that witness should be, when rightly ordered and carried out, that the church has more influence over the culture than the culture has over the the church. I'll leave it to you to be the judge of whether that is true today or not. Brothers and sisters, pray for the church. Pray for the Pope the bishops and the priests of our beloved Holy Mother Church to be strong and courageous in walking in the authority imparted by our Lord. The church is still the only answer, the only hope to what ails this dark world. So pray for the church. There is great limitless power in the prayer of agreement among believers. Jesus told us so in the closing verses of today's gospel passage and with this I'll close. Verses 19 and 20 Jesus says again I say to you if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.